Thanks for checking out this sermon from Christ the King in Carrollton, Georgia, where our goal is to glorify God by making, training, and sending disciples to engage our neighbors and the nations with the gospel of Jesus. If you want to learn more about us, you can find us online at ctkcarrollton.com, or better yet, join us on a Sunday in Carrollton. We are almost at this point halfway through a seven-week series on the miracles of Jesus recorded uh, by John in which we see each week this emphasis on the deity of Jesus. We see this emphasis each week on the humanity of Jesus, his compassion and his kingdom that he is bringing about and will bring about. We talked a couple of weeks ago about how we're in this tension, right? We're, we're in this tension as it pertains to the kingdom of God because we are in the already not yet, right? Um, Jesus comes onto the scene and he announces the arrival of this kingdom, right? But we are well acquainted with the brokenness of our world and our own uh, earthly condition. And so while the kingdom is here, um, it has not been fully manifest yet, right? And so we're in the already not yet. And through the seven miracles of Jesus, we are getting this glimpse at what the kingdom in its fullness as it arrives um, is to look like. Kingdom arrival in its fullness. Be a great tag to kind of trace through um, this study through John. Our lives are oriented around this reality, right? That we serve a God who loves us to the point that he died for us before exercising his strength over death and the resurrection, who promises to raise us up with him in the new heaven and the new earth. John, through his recording of these miracles of Jesus, is desiring that those reading along would be struck with wonder. And would believe in this Jesus, that readers would love Jesus, that they would embrace his forgiveness, committing themselves to live for him. And so we as a church join John in this desire. But that as we uh, work our way through these seven miracles, as we each week come in a posture of humility before God's word and the gospel, that we too would adopt the same desire. Right, that we would know Jesus more as we, as we know him in the word. That we would commit ourselves to living for him, living mission, loving others, pursuing after our neighbors, reconciling broken relationships, all by the power of the gospel. That our desire would be that for those who don't know Jesus, that they would come to know Jesus. That this would be a driving, motivating factor behind our existence, behind our lives. It shapes and informs everything that we do. Our desire as a church right? Corporately and and individually, its members is that those who don't know and love Jesus would be so blown away by his love for us, for his love for them, that they would turn from their sin and live in Christ and for Christ. And so if you're sitting here this morning and you're going, okay, what does my prayer as we are gathered together look like? How does this desire inform and shape the way that I engage with and interact in this service? That is a great example. May the hearts of God's people be heavy, desiring to see this movement of the word. An exercising of the power of the spirit. 
to save sinners. This is what we want. And um, this is what we desire. I think that our passage from John 5 today, Jesus' third healing, has a really intentional and somewhat confrontational tone designed to challenge readers to ask the question. Here it is. Right? And in light of my sickness, in light of my sin, do I desire to be made well? Do I want to be made well? Do I want to see and do I want to, do I want to know? The encouragement being this call out to Jesus for healing. Right, this call out to Christ for life, expressing gratitude to God for his work to initiate this call as his spirit produces the will required to act as he desires. Now, that is a loaded statement that we are going to see displayed as we work our way through these 17 verses of John chapter 5. There is a challenge and there is, and there is clarity When we consider these events in light of the cross, Jesus is accomplishing in himself that which the details of this passage have failed in. Now, some of this isn't going to come full circle until we we close it out. So I'm kind of bookending, right? I'm, I'm teasing a little bit on the front end. Right, I'm introducing this idea, this, this concept of Jesus in himself doing a work that the details of this passage fail in. I'm planting the seed so that as we work our way, weaving our way through these 17 verses at the end, we can go, ah, that's what he's talking about. So so consider that as we read through, as we work through this portion of John chapter 5, consider the elements observable. Consider the practice. Consider the reason Jesus is here. Not like here, but like like here, right? Like why is he here in John chapter 5? And what is he accomplishing by way of creating quite a stir around his healing on the Sabbath? Again, Jesus is drawing us into this understanding of his ability to accomplish that which all of the details observable have failed to accomplish. That's the teaser. So let's begin to, let's begin to work our way that direction. Big idea for our time together this morning. This would be a great note to make as it will serve to kind of like shape the rhythms of our, of our time together. Here it is. It's on the screen uh, for you so you can write it down. Our sympathetic savior, who is Jesus, knowledgeable of our brokenness, confronts us in our despair, revealing himself as our only hope. Our sympathetic savior. Jesus, knowledgeable of our brokenness, confronts us in our despair, confronts us in our death, confronts us in our sin, revealing himself as our only hope. Let's look at John chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. After this, there was a feast of the Jews. And Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades, colonnades, pillars. Verse 3. 
In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. Verse 6. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, do you want to be healed? Verse 7. The sick man answered him, sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Now, in these first three verses, we are seeing the establishing of this scene. The scene is being set for us in the first three verses. In chapter five, let me take us back for just a a, a moment as we're going to kind of weave the position of this story into the larger narrative. In chapter five, Jesus heals the son of a Roman official. Through this, we see that the gospel, the good news of life is for everyone. That is to say that it's not reserved for one segment of the population or another. The gospel is not reserved for the wealthy. The gospel is not reserved for the poor, but it is in fact for uh, all people, right? It's not for one ethnic group or another, but for sinners in need of a savior. We see through this second miracle of Jesus, the power of the word of Jesus to produce healing. Right, to, to serve as the catalyst for this life that God intends and desires. In a broken world, the word of God provides hope. Three observations that I want us to work through from John chapter 5. Number one, the knowledge of Jesus. We get a great picture into the mind of Jesus In these first few verses of John chapter 5, we see the knowledge of Jesus. We see a confrontation from Jesus and we see Jesus as our only hope. These are the three observations that we're going to center our time around this morning. So let's jump right in. The knowledge of Jesus. As we come into chapter 5, it seems like very little time has passed. Looking ahead to chapter 6, reference is made to the Jewish festival of Passover. And as a result, there is a tendency to see these events as all happening in super close proximity to one another. But in actuality, it's more likely that the events of John 5 would have happened to sometime after the healing of the official son in John 4. And sometime before the feast of Passover in John 6, that's to say this, we're setting the stage here, that these events may not have happened in as close a period of time as it initially seems. Nonetheless, Jesus is back in Jerusalem. In order to observe whichever festival or feast this might have been. Now that seems like a very small, minute detail. But again, what are we tracing? We're tracing Jesus' accomplishing in himself of that which the events that this story seems to center on or in fail. So we make a side note of this. What's going on? Why is Jesus in Jerusalem? Make a mental note. We're going to work on unpacking this question through our time together. Whatever the case, Jesus makes a point to go to this pool by the sheep's gate where those suffering various ailments and disabilities gather 
in hope. Gathering in in hope of being healed, as we would come to find out from verse 7. John writes in verse 3 that in this area there are individuals with a range of ailments. He names some specifically, right? Some are blind. Others are are lame, even paralyzed. In verse 5, Jesus narrows his focus upon one man in particular. A man who has been immobile in some capacity for 38 years. In verse 6, John writes this, that when Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he asked him. Now, this is a huge question, but I want us to pause for just a moment. And I want us to consider what the narrowing of Jesus' focus and the question that he is to present says about his intimate knowledge of this individual, thus shaping the way that we understand his intimate knowledge of us. I want us to consider for a moment, tease out the compassionate character of Jesus. And in doing so, we are going to answer a question, a question that you might be asking if you're following along. Now, this is a side note. You may not even have have noticed this, but I do think that this is a valuable opportunity to address it as it could cause some confusion for you now or in the future as you read through John chapter five. And that question is this, where in the world is verse four? (laughs) Did anybody notice as we are reading through that there's no verse 4, depending on the translation that you are reading. If you're reading through the ESV, the NIV, or the New American Standard, if you were reading along on the screen, you likely noticed that there is not a verse 4, that it's not there. And here's the why. This was a great question um, that as we sit down and we engage other people with God's word, someone might ask. And so being able to understand and to answer it, I do believe is helpful and it assists in us getting to this, this bigger point that we're trying to establish. Here's why there's no verse 4. There's no verse 4 in John chapter 5 because the oldest and best manuscripts don't contain this verse, which reads. So if you're reading the, uh, the King James, the, the verse is there, right? Um, if you're reading another translation, perhaps the verse is there. This is what the verse says in some of those translations left out by the NIV, the ESV, and the NASB, the New American. Verse 4 reads, Waiting for the moving of the water, for an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred the water. And whoever stepped in first after the stirring of the water was healed of whatever disease that he had. Now, many view verse 4 as a note added by a scribe at a later date to assist in explaining verse 7, which reads as follows. Sir, I have no one to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. And so in an attempt to explain a little bit more thoroughly what we see in verse 7, many believe this note to have been added as a scribal note at some point uh, between the initial recording and, and that which we are even engaging with this morning. A note that attempts to explain this phenomenon around the water and its healing power. It's a really strange scene, isn't it? 
if we look at verse 4 and then we look at verse 7, it appears as though there is this pool of water and the explanation, the understood uh, purpose behind the healing power of the water is that an angel comes down and stirs the water and the first person to get in experiences healing. What we see here in verse 4, which is, is held out perhaps of many of the Bibles that we're reading this morning, is a, is a note that is intended to explain this phenomenon. But let's not become so focused on this detail of the story that we miss the primary emphasis. Because the, the emphasis of what we see here in these first few verses is not the pool's work. It's not essential to the story. How this pool works, whether or not there is a supernatural explanation or a more scientific natural phenomenon that can be used to explain that which is taking place is not essential. What's essential here is Jesus's work. Okay, what's essential here is is the work of the hands of Jesus. So let's not get so caught up in the details of this really interesting story that we lose sight of what the primary focus is. John makes a point to draw out what appears to be an intimate knowledge from Jesus about this man. It doesn't sound as though Jesus just happened upon this man. In fact, it sounds a lot like the language that John uses to frame Jesus's conversation with the Samaritan woman at the well in John chapter three. That is to say this, that there is an emphasis early on in this story of the intentionality of Jesus to arrive at this exact location at this exact moment. This isn't a a sightseeing trip for Jesus. Jesus is not in town for the feast. He's not in town for the festival. And he's, you know, got a little bit of free time. And so he's seeing the city. That's not what's going on here. From everything that we have here, it appears as though there is this, this knowledge from Jesus about this man pertaining to the length of time at which he has been waiting to be made well. I think John wants his readers to understand Jesus's choice to go to this specific location with a divine knowledge of not just what he would find, but who he would find. The type of knowledge possessed by God, celebrated by the psalmist in Psalm 139 as he writes, beginning in verse one, oh Lord, you have searched me And known me. You know when I sit down and when I rise up. You discern my thoughts from afar. You search out my path and my lying down. And are acquainted with all of my ways. Even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it all together. John's emphasizing a point here as we consider the the knowledge of Jesus observable as he finds this particular invalid gathered at this pool waiting in order to be made well. John wants his readers to know that when we know Jesus, this is who we know. A sovereign king who is intimately knowledgeable of every atom in creation because he put it in its place as he holds all matter 
together. This is the Jesus that we know. This is the Jesus that we know, but perhaps even more amazingly, this is the Jesus that knows us. This is a humbling consideration. Because it draws out from us this desire to perhaps consider the way in which Jesus sees not only those gathered around this pool... But in light of what we know of our own spiritual condition, the way that Jesus sees the world. I think that there's a, there's a little bit of insight here in John chapter 5 that helps us to understand the way that Jesus sees the world as its creator. How does he see it now on this side of things, this side of Genesis chapter 3, understanding the, the stain that sin has had on this beautiful world that he created? One commentator made the following note. He said this, he said, what a, what a sight for the great physician to look upon all of these people gathered around this pool, desperate, hopeless, waiting to be made well. But then he makes this, this following statement. He says this, he says, the whole world must have been to him like a huge hospital. For us, we put ourselves in the position and we go, man, you walk around Jerusalem, you're seeing the sights and everything seems to be going quite well. It's a festive season. And then you walk upon this pool and it's surrounded by people who are physically ailing. Maybe even a, a region that is uh, that, that traffic is diverted around during this particular time of year. During the festival season, it's like when the Olympics came to Atlanta, right? What's the story? The Olympics came to Atlanta and, uh, and they got a bunch of Greyhound buses. And anyone who was like on the streets, homeless, like bust them on down south. You guys familiar with this? Right, this is not a, a, an attractive right, scene that we are observing here. This is brokenness on clear display. But then we step back and we go, well, wait a second. We are talking about the perspective of the divine creator of all things, right? Like Jesus made everything, like in the beginning, prior to sin's effect. We understand our own spiritual condition. We understand our, our death and our sin. And then we, we consider the way in which Jesus observes the condition of the world as he works his way, weaving through the streets of Jerusalem. It's not as though he's just happening upon this very sad, tragic scene, although it is most certainly very sad and very tragic. But this is the condition of the world that Jesus observes. Everything is broken. The whole world is a hospital. Jesus is surrounded by sick people, even when he's not surrounded by sick people. Those who are sad and, and suffering, those afflicted physically, mentally, and spiritually here, there is every indication that Jesus willfully seeks the sick. The incarnation, every indication that Jesus willfully seeks the sick. Luke chapter 19 verse 10 helps us to understand this. Jesus himself states that he came to what? To seek and to save the lost. That he came to seek and to save the sick. 
the knowledge of Jesus, this consideration of the way in which he sees the world, this identification of this one man whom Jesus knew intimately. He wasn't told how long this man had been sitting by the pool. He just knew it. He knew that he was there and he knew how long he had been there. There's this encouragement as we consider the knowledge, the mind of Jesus to see his intentional pursuit. All of this will serve to frame our understanding of his work. We're building, okay? And so consider this, set this to the side, the intimate knowledge of Jesus, his awareness of this particular individual, his seeking him out, this one sick person among a myriad of sick people. Jesus seeks, Jesus goes, Jesus addresses. And now we see Jesus confront Jesus knows the human condition. He moves toward people in compassion. He moves toward people in sympathy. Before then, electing out of love. Let's not confuse the heart of Christ here. Let's not confuse the character of Christ here. Electing out of love to confront This all encourages us to consider Jesus's question, to explore Jesus's question, which is found in verse six. Remember, I put the brakes on as we worked our way through verse five. Hold up, wait a minute. Let's talk a little bit about the context around verse five. We come into verse six and we see Jesus observes him lying there. He knew he had been there for a long time. And he said to him, do you want to be healed? What an interesting question. On Sunday night, we, uh, we had our family meeting on Sunday night, which for those of you who maybe are a little bit unfamiliar, once a month we um, get all of the membership here at Christ the King and we come together and we meet on a Sunday night and we talk about like what's going on within the life of our church. We kind of cast a vision or rearticulate vision for what's going on and where we're going. We hear from, from different people at different times. We vote on things. There's a lot of things that are happening, right, on, on Sunday night. This is not very interesting up until this point, but here's where it gets interesting. Okay, we also use this time for training. And so on Sunday night, we came around John chapter five and we practiced asking good questions of a text, which is super helpful, by the way. So let's just kind of like dive into that for a minute. It's always helpful when we come to a Bible, regardless of passage, to ask certain questions like who is writing and when are they writing and who are the characters and what is this scene, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There are are other questions that I could go into, but I'm not going to get into it at this time. But while we we were in groups asking questions. I was standing here and there was one group over here and there was a group over here and there was a group in the back. And now everybody understands the landscape of the room. And I heard one person in this group ask the question, why does Jesus ask this guy if he wants to be healed? I mean, the answer seems really obvious, doesn't it? Like, why would he ask the question? Why does Jesus ask the question? Why does he frame the question the way that he does? Man, what a great question. And that's a great question from Jesus. And that's a great question from the individual in this group to ask the question, why does Jesus ask the question? Because it's, it's one that when we seek to answer it, reveals the depth of hopelessness in this man's life. 38 years of of physical limitation. John is super generic in the terminology that he uses to describe this man's condition. Perhaps he is paralyzed. Perhaps he is lame. We don't know. We don't have all of the information, but we do know this. 
that this condition, after 38 years of personal experience, would have undoubtedly resulted in emotional strain in light of physical limitation. Am I ever going to be made well? We might consider it this way, a broken will. Right? Like a will that is just so broken as one has waited to be made well for so long that they have just given up hope altogether. And perhaps sitting at this pool is more of a a routine at this point than anything else. I'm here because I don't have anywhere else to go. Like, I don't know, given the length of time in which this man has wrestled with this limitation, that there is any true, like, understanding or consideration of the availability of being made well at this point. All of this leads us to Jesus's question. As he, as John Piper has so eloquently said it, continues this process of embarking on a violent spiritual campaign against evil. That's what Jesus is doing here. He is on a a violent spiritual campaign against evil. He's confronting this man and his broken will with the following question. Do you want to be made well? You're here. And so like your physical placement seems to indicate that you desire to be made well. But what is your inward condition? Like, do you believe that this is something even to be grasped at this point? Or again, is this just a a rhythm that you are going to, going through? I think there's a, a point of application. There's a question for application that each one of us might need to consider in light of the question that Jesus presents. We all find ourselves in a particular location this morning, don't we? This is kind of what this looks like, okay? Like you're here. I know you're here because you're here and you're not somewhere else, okay? Like you're, you're present this morning. And so the question that we might ask to bridge the gap in order to bring about greater understanding is this. Why are you here? Like why are you here this morning? John chapter 5 confronts us with the question of why? It helps us to, to relate. This question helps us to relate with the question that's being presented to the invalid of John 5. Jesus looks at him and he says, you are in a place that you believe a particular action will produce wellness. But why are you here? Each one of us could say a similar thing, couldn't we? Like you're, you're, you're here, right, this morning, as opposed to being somewhere else, because there is this belief that being here is important and, and valuable, perhaps. But that's, again, this is where you need to ask the question, right? Like, are you here because this is uh, routine? Again, perhaps a question that the man from John chapter 5 is wrestling with, a question that we ought to wrestle with. Are you here because it is, it is habit, Are you here because you're bored? Are you here because you have some interest? Are you here because you have questions that you desire to be answered or you desire community or perhaps you're here out of curiosity? Let me be really clear, okay? Being here is a great routine to develop. Being here is a great routine to develop, right? Your, uh, your, Your boredom will be obliterated through your consideration of God's word. Okay, your, your desire for community, while not totally satisfied, 
as only Christ and this new relationship with him can thoroughly satisfy that will look much better though than if you weren't here. But Jesus is desiring to do something so much more. Right, he's desiring to do more than to cure your boredom. Right, Jesus is doing something more than trying to develop a routine in your life to establish a rhythm. Right, Jesus is doing something more than simply answering your questions. The desire of Jesus is that those who have been placed in the spiritual bondage of sin and death might be set free. His desire is to accomplish in you this this new exodus where spiritually blind eyes are provided sight. Where spiritually deaf ears are made to hear. Where the lame and dead are provided life and made able to walk. This is the desire of Jesus. And we find by way of this question, a certain, certain type of confrontation from him toward this individual. Again, man, coded with sympathy. Again, coded with compassion. But it does feel like Jesus is pushing a little bit. Why are you here? The question that we need to ask ourselves. Why are you here? Like, what are you doing? What are you desiring? And then in verse 8, following this man's explanation, which we already read from verse 7, Jesus calls this man to do exactly what he can't. He asks him the question, do you want to be made well? Yes, and here is kind of the reason that that hasn't happened yet. Jesus doesn't really engage around this thought. Doesn't call him out for like having bad friends who won't come alongside him and lift him up into the water. Again, it's not the point. Instead, he asks him to do the impossible, to get up and to walk. And here's the incredible thing, right? The man does. I don't know what's more incredible I don't know if it's more incredible that the man like who is unable to walk is then made able to walk or the man whose will seems to be totally defeated actually tries. I think both speak towards a miracle of grace from Jesus. I think both inform the way that we understand how Jesus brings life to the spiritually dead. He provides the will and then he provides the way, the strength, the means, right? Like that's the way that Jesus is working here. That's the way that he's, that he's functioning here. This man has no will. Everything seems to point towards that. In the same way that we observe the healing of Jesus for the man that required two touches in Luke's account of the gospel. A man who has been blind and believes himself unable to see to the point that his friends convince him to come along. And Jesus does what? He, he, he rubs his eyes. 
And he asks him, can you see? And what does the man say? Bible drill, Bible trivia. He says, I see people, but they look like trees, right? And so like there's kind of something going on here. And there is a a new birth and a renewal of my desire, my will, and my belief. But there's still this need. Jesus touches him again and his sight is restored. Jesus, Jesus gives birth within this man to a will that results in an obedience to his word that is to get up, to pick up his mat, and to leave. There's no indication that the healing that we observe physically here translates into any type of spiritual healing. We can't say, based on what we have here in John chapter 5, that this man became like a follower of Jesus. I don't think that we have the information. But for those of us who are recognizing in light of God's word, our own depravity, our own sin, our own need, our own separation, who see our need for a savior, Jesus is showing by way of this compassionate act, this sympathetic act here in John chapter five, his ability to deal with that. If you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, man, there is a desire in me to be forgiven. God's word is, is showing and articulating and making clear my inability to make myself uh, right before the Lord. Right, to clean myself up enough right, that I might enjoy the intimacy of relationship with God the Father. I see my inability to do that. I need to be forgiven. I need to be made well. Recognize this, that that is a gift of grace. Your understanding of your spiritual condition is a gift from the Lord. We have no capacity in and of ourselves to stir that up, to manifest that. We might feel it, but it certainly doesn't lead us to run to Christ, not apart from the gracious intervention of God. And so the question then posed to the invalid, do you want to be made well, is the same question that we have to answer this morning. Do we want to be made well? Who does that? Who makes us well? The great physician, Jesus does. He calls us to turn from our sin and to trust in him, to believe in him, to trust in his righteousness, his sacrifice in our place, his, here it is, we love this terminology, his substitutionary atoning work, right? Jesus in our place so that we might receive his righteous reward, that we might be sons and daughters of the sovereign King, of God the Father, that we might be indwelt by the Spirit. We see our need. It is a gift of grace. What are we doing here? Do we desire to be made well? Man, look to Christ. Look to Christ. Cast yourself upon Christ. His death for us and the hope of the resurrection. Jesus confronts this man. He transforms his will and then he heals his legs. We've got to continue on. We've got just a few minutes left. Not only do we observe the knowledge of Jesus, not only do we witness a confrontation from Jesus, not only do we here this morning experience a bit of this, hear Jesus asking this, wrestling with it ourselves, but we see that our only hope is in Jesus. It's at this point that I want to transition and I want to nerd out on you guys for a minute, okay? 
I'm going to introduce you to a resource that's a good friend of mine. <laughs> I like to refer to my books as friends. Anybody else like get on board with that? It's kind of fun. I like to do that. Um, I'm going to introduce you to a friend of mine. Um, it's a big book, okay? Um, and it's super nerdy, okay? Super Bible nerdy here, okay? Um, it's called The Biblical Foundations of Christian Worship, <laughs> okay? This is what it looks like. What incredible artwork. The 70s, they continue to give, don't they? Pretty sure that's what this is from. It's got to be. Only then did that look good. In chapter 17 of of this text, it's incredible. In chapter 17 of this text, um, the author is talking about the meaning of feasts in the biblical tradition. Now, why is that helpful for you and I this morning? Where do we find ourselves in John chapter 5? In a season of feast, don't we? In chapter 6, we find that it's the season of Pentecost. But in chapter 5, not knowing exactly what feast it is, I was trying to kind of wrap my mind around what is this intended to accomplish? Because we don't practice feasts like this, right? Um, And so what does that mean? What is that all about? Like how does the timing behind what Jesus is doing here inform our understanding of what he's doing here? I think that there's a connection. And so I want to read a couple of things for you guys. Is this cool? Good, I'm going to do it anyway. Like, so hang with me. Listen to what the author says about the meaning of feasts in the biblical tradition. I've got to say something else before we read it. (laughs) I'm going to read it in a second, okay? So everybody's like, no, he's not. He's not reading it. I'm going to read it in one second. The question that we were asking in the beginning is what? How is Jesus pointing to himself as the fulfillment of everything within this, that that those things, the rhythms within this passage are intended to like point towards? How is Jesus saying, no, it's me? Okay, no, 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 it's me. Like I'm doing it and I'm making a better kingdom and you guys say you want this, but you don't even know what this looks like because in just a few verses, you're gonna get really mad at me for doing like what I've done, which everything that we're doing is intended to point toward that. Okay, listen, here we go. Okay, I'm really doing it this time. All right, here we go. The feasts of Israelite and Jewish worship, like those in other religious traditions were occasions on which worshipers might transcend the shortcomings of ordinary life. So what's the purpose of the season that the Jewish people are observing here in John chapter 5? It's a transcendent season, right? Transcending the, uh, the shortcomings of ordinary life. We live in a fallen world. We exist in a broken tradition. We are all feeling the effects of it. But man, let's get together and let's have a feast. Let's have a party and let's forget about all the bad times and let's like transcend that. That's the Kirk translation of what we just read, okay? The festivals served as as windows into a higher order of hope and positive values. In Israel, the, the agricultural feasts took on added meaning as celebrations of the Lord's historic acts of blessing and deliverance and as tokens of the covenant, A little bit more detail, the purpose, the purpose of Jewish feasts, everything that we're doing here. What are we gathering for? What is this about? Here in John chapter 5, a feast celebrates the positive character of existence. In the face of evil and pain, feasts proclaim the goodness of creation and the freedom to enjoy the world because God made it. Let me read that last part one more time. And I want you to think about how this finds a home And what we're seeing here in John chapter 5, a feast celebrates the positive character of existence in the face of evil and pain, which we clearly observe going on here, don't we? The effects of evil, right? 
and, um, and pain. The effects of evil and pain. Who's feeling the effects of evil and pain here in this story? We have a man who's been an invalid for 38 years. And he finds himself waiting by this pool in the season of feast intended to celebrate the transcendent nature of who God is and what he's accomplishing. Looking beyond these things into, into the next Right? Feast proclaimed the goodness of creation and the freedom to enjoy the world because God made it. Now, we are seeking to understand our only hope being the person and work of Jesus. Consider this for just a moment. A season of feast intended to articulate and emphasize transcendence. Insert into the story this scene that clearly makes it difficult to accomplish that. Sick people, broken people, paralyzed people, blind people, deaf people gathered around the pool hoping for everything that this feast is intended to point towards, right? A a transcendence, an existence outside of evil and, and pain, a proclamation of the goodness of creation and the freedom to enjoy the world because God made it. I mean, these are things that are difficult to accomplish in this season for these people, even though they find themselves as even fringe participants of this festival season. Read on in the story and we're going to find that that Feelings towards Jesus are in John chapter 5 undergoing a type of transformation in and of themselves. Up until this point, people are really interested in Jesus. They're really interested in the authority in which Jesus speaks. They're really interested in the power in which Jesus displays. People are asking a lot of questions. There's a transition that happens in verse 17 though, isn't there? People begin to become very upset and frustrated with Jesus. Verse 16, and this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. What is the Sabbath intended to articulate and demonstrate and encourage? Rest, rest in God, reliance on his word and his gracious provision. Everything that is intended to to be accomplished by way of practice within John chapter five is falling desperately short. Jesus says of himself by way of his healing during this particular season, man, is that it will not be feast and it will not be rest and ritual, but it will be me that will accomplish all of the things that these things are intended to point towards. Jesus is the fuller fulfillment, right? Jesus is the one who makes possible a celebration of existence. Jesus is the one who allows us to, in seasons of pain and difficulty, persevere, not because he takes us from it, but because he identifies with us in it. We look to Christ and we trust in Christ. We understand his ability to bring about a new creation, true freedom that we might enjoy the world around us and those in whom we interact with, that we might enjoy new and true and better relationship with God because of what he has accomplished in our place on the cross. I mean, we have occasion for worship. 
We find our shortcomings are literally transcended by way of the ordinary life, the extraordinary, ordinary life of Jesus. If these festivals are windows, then Jesus walks in and he kicks the door in. (laughs) Okay, he blows the wall out and he goes, these things are intended to, to highlight kingdom existence. But I'm here to tell you and to show you what this really looks like. We've got to close out our time. We observe here through John chapter 5 verses 1 through 17, the knowledge of Jesus. We see a a witness, a confrontation from Jesus. And finally, there is this encouragement that Jesus is our only hope. Our sympathetic savior, knowledgeable of our brokenness, confronts us in our despair, revealing himself as our only hope. He is our only hope. He brings us into rest. He is sympathetic in his response to the invalid of John 5. He frames the way that we understand the compassion of Christ for you and I. When we understand our condition while informing the way that we see and move toward those around us. This is the application of John chapter 5. Jesus knows me. And in his intimate knowledge of me and all of my brokenness, he moves toward me in order to bring me to life, adopting me into his family. This realization shapes for us our rhythms as we live as God's people in this already not yet. Right? We, we, we move toward the world in compassion, with sympathy, desiring, to see our king transform human hearts as dead people made alive by Jesus. We go into the world heralding the gospel, desiring Jesus to be worshiped as other dead people are made alive. And so what do we do? What do we do in light of what we see here in John chapter five? We're closing out. We do this, man. We, um, we be alive. Okay, like be alive. That's where we start. I don't know where you are this morning and you may have come in here and you're asking yourself 35 different questions as to why. But here's what we know, that Jesus desires to to transfer us from the kingdom of death and darkness into the kingdom of life and light. He accomplishes this by way of his work on the cross. The resurrection is evidence of that. And so be alive. Hear me pleading with you this morning. Trust in Christ, trust on Christ. Give yourself to Jesus, our King, asking him to save you and to shape the rhythms of daily existence. May our rhythms not be shaped by culture. May our rhythms not be shaped by best intention, but may our rhythms be shaped by Jesus. So we seek to live as his people, ambassadors of a truer and better kingdom servants of a, of a truer and better king in this world. Call out to Jesus and be made well. Have your will restored. Trust in him, his work. Let's pray together.